Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. We come to the eighth sermon in the book of Jeremiah. It begins here in chapter 18. It will continue to the end of the chapter all the way through to chapter 20, verse 18. One of the difficulties that we have when we read our Bibles from time to time is we tend to think in terms of chronology, beginning, middle, and end. And the sermons that Jeremiah preaches aren't necessarily in chronological order. And because they're not in chronological order, sometimes it's difficult to understand the exact historical circumstances of that specific message. Reputable scholars place the time of this particular message at the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. Now, you may not off the top of your head know about Jehoiakim, but he was a bad king in Judah, in Jerusalem. He despised the Lord. He despised God's word. He despised God's prophets. In other words, it wasn't a part of his way of thinking that he was going to honor God, obey God, submit to God. At some point in his 11-year reign, Jehoiakim would basically seize Jeremiah's sermons and he would toss them in the fire in an attempt to suppress Jeremiah's message. And we'll find out more about that when we get to chapter 36, verses 21 through 32. And so you can imagine if someone finds you and is trying to kill you and suppressing the message, it's sometimes very difficult to continue your ministry. So the passage prompts several questions that I'm sure each and every one of you have asked at least one time in your life. Like, well, how am I to understand if God is sovereign, if God is in control, if God knows everything about everything, then why does he allow wicked behavior to continue? In the news just recently, we have yet another rash of news broadcasts of mothers who get drunk, who, who don't take care of their kids, and all of a sudden the, the, the child disappears. 
And I understand why the news broadcasts this, because every person with any sense of decency understands at the most fundamental level that there's something wrong about abandoning children or hurting children or, or somehow abusing children. So why does God allow abusive circumstances to happen? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? How are we supposed to understand all of these things? Why does God allow bad behavior to continue? And so at the beginning of this passage, Jeremiah is invited to go to the potter's house. And he is going to witness a live parable. As a matter of fact, in verses 1 through 17, Jeremiah, what he sees is described in verses 1 through 4. And then what he hears continues in verses 5 through 10. The Lord informs Jeremiah that he's the divine potter and that he's going to soon remold the sinfully marred vessel called Israel. The Lord tells Jeremiah, I need you to warn the people that I'm going to destroy them, that I'm going to take them captive. I'm going to replace them in their land. The city's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. And so the chapter begins with a parable and then continues with a plot in verse 18. The leaders will decide to attack Jeremiah for his fearless preaching. And then the end of the chapter, it will end with prayers from Jeremiah as the prophet cries out to God and he says, look, I need you to deliver me from my enemies, and then I need you to execute them. So it begins in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And remember that expression, the word. It's the express communication of God. It's what God says. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. In chapter 18, God explains to Jeremiah that sovereign grace is able to take the marred pot Israel and then make it into a useful vessel in verse 4. And so he goes, arise, go down to the potter's house. Chapter 19, verse 2, tells of this potsherd gate that leads to the valley of Hinnom. If I had the ability to take you back in time and I could show you the gates of the ancient city and how the gate that led into the valley of Hinnom was this place where the potter is, is making his pots. And obviously these are vessels that are used by almost everyone. And so there's literally thousands of broken shards and broken pottery. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to go to Israel and not walk somewhere and find some fragment of some broken pot. When a place has been occupied for 6,000 years, hey, it's easy to find broken pots. In verse 3 it says, then I went down to the potter's house. And there he was, making something at the wheel. Now it shouldn't shock us or surprise us, throughout the book of Jeremiah... Jeremiah will see things. He'll see an almond tree. He'll see people cooking. He will see this potter in the, at the potter's house. And he's making something. And by the way, when it says there was something on the wheel, the wheel here literally, in the Hebrew language, it means two stones. Most potter's wheels today are made out of wood, um, but in the ancient times, they were made out of stone. 
There were two wheels that were connected by a vertical shaft. And the potter would spin the bottom stone with his feet, which would cause the top stone to twirl. And the potter would place a lump of clay on top of it and then start to create something. And in verse 4 it says, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the the potter, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. In other words, as he's doing this, the Lord is drawing to Jeremiah's attention this parable. Now, remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that represents a spiritual truth. And so God is even at that point communicating with Jeremiah. The potter notices a defect in the clay. And so the potter decides to squash the clay and then start all over again. Look what it says. As it seemed good to the potter or literally in the Hebrew language, it says. As it was straight in the eyes of the potter. It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language. He's looking at it and he's not pleased. There's something about the clay that prohibits, inhibits, or otherwise restricts what he has in mind. Now, there's only one thing that kept me from being a famous artist. I have no talent whatsoever. There are people who have tremendous talent. I'm not one of them. I'm the kind of guy who, in art class, remember, I made everything into an ashtray. That's the only time in my life I ever thank God that my parents smoked. Because I I, I actually couldn't do anything. I I never got really advanced beyond the ashtray stage. When he notices a defect in the clay, the clay itself is preventing the potter from doing what seems good to the potter. And in verse 5 it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying in verse 6, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In other words, the divine potter will make something good even from the sorriest clay. But the expression, so are you in my hand, is a claim of the sovereign ability and power of God. And some Bible teachers and Bible commentators do exactly the opposite of what the text is saying. Some people draw from this story the idea that God is capricious or nonsensical, that he does stuff on a whim. God doesn't do things on a whim. God is thoughtful and God is careful and God is gracious and kind and loving and generous. And so when it says that the divine potter will make something, the parable is a metaphor for God's absolute right, absolute sovereignty, absolute power over me and over you. Now, we might intellectually begin to process that. We might say, okay, I understand that God made me. And I understand that God made me for his glory and for friendship and fellowship. 
I, as you begin to process and you go, okay, the creator God who created everything, who created the planet, who created the dirt, which m- provided the mechanism for you to exist, that everything about you, the place where you were born and the circumstances that you were born, the brain that you're born with, everything about you has been ordered and orchestrated by God. And for many of you, that's where your problem with God begins. Yeah, that's my problem with God. What was God thinking? What was he thinking when he placed me in the family that he placed me in? What was he thinking by giving me that mom and giving me that dad? What was God thinking when he placed me in the circumstances that he placed me in? What was God thinking when he gave me my unique genetic signature? Why did God give me green eyes instead of brown eyes? Why didn't God give me the stature of a a quarterback? Why didn't God give me this? Why didn't God give me that? Why didn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? And so they begin to complain. And they begin to get upset. We understand, at least some of us understand, that God has the right to do exactly what God desires to do. Some of us do not understand that this is not mindless, capricious, Or whimsical. Does God have the right to do exactly what God wants to do at any given moment? And for reasons that he doesn't feel the necessity to explain to me and you. By the way, did God check in with you when he created the heavens and the air? Did God check in with you as he began to plan redemption and salvation and reconciliation? Did God check in with you in order to solve the problem of sin? And here's the big question. Does God have the right to save or condemn as he chooses? The answer is yes. But will God save or condemn in a way that is inconsistent with his character, inconsistent with his revelation? Will God act in a way that is unreasonable, impulsive, dictatorial? Does God act righteously or unrighteously? What do you think the answer is? That is the right answer. Even though you're saying it with your brain, your heart and your brain might be disconnected just for a moment. You know that's true, but you don't always feel that that's true. Does the sovereign nature of God inform his decisions or does his nature guide his sovereignty? Which do you think it is? I'm going to suggest to you that in the indivisible character of God, that God is love and that God is grace and that God is mercy. When you begin to understand what the Bible has to say about God, that God is sovereign, but God is also loving and kind and gracious, that he is incapable of wickedness of any sort whatsoever. So does God reserve the right to pronounce judgment on those who reject him and lavish mercy and grace and peace and eternal life and exercise the power to forgive and deliver those who repent of their sin and turn to him? And that seems to be the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible seems to be that God made us, that God made us in such a way That we could choose or choose otherwise. That we could respond or refuse to respond. 
And so in verse 7, it says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. In just a few single words and sentences, the Bible proclaims that God is able to do exactly what he wants, anytime he wants, under whatever circumstances he decides. It's God who establishes kingdoms and civilizations and nations. And when he says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down and destroy it, the implication is God can create a civilization, he can grow that civilization, and he can destroy that civilization. And in verse 8, when it says, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. In other words, the Lord insists that he has the power to relent of the disaster if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil. What does that mean? It means that God reserves the right and embraces the power to forgive and deliver people. According to his own good pleasure. And he doesn't owe you an explanation and he doesn't owe me an explanation. One of the illustrations that I use is imagine everyone in this building right at this very moment. I said, guess what? Five of you are going to get one hundred dollars. And then all of a sudden you thought, hmm. I wonder if it's me. I wonder if I'm one of the five people who's going to receive a $100 bill. Now imagine I pick five people. You. And you. And you. And you. And you. How do the rest of you feel? Bitter. Left out, upset. By the way, did anyone deserve anything? And so if it's mine, why should you be concerned what I choose to give or what I choose to withhold? By the way, do you deserve anything from God? The right answer is you don't. The right answer is judgment. If you are deserving of anything, it's judgment. But instead of judgment, he goes, no, I'm not going to give you judgment. I'm going to give you grace and I'm going to give you mercy and I'm going to give you love and I'm going to give you forgiveness and I'm going to give you redemption and I'm going to give you hope. God reserves the right and the power to forgive and deliver if people respond. God will deal with us favorably as our moral condition permits. And guess what? God has spoken to many of you on many occasions and said, okay, I'm giving you another chance. And then the devil whispers in your ear, you dirty, rotten sinner, you don't deserve another chance. How many more chances is God going to give you? And you say, I don't know, but I'm grateful for this chance. In verse 9, it says, And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and plant it, 
In verse 10, it says, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. It works both ways. So here God associates evil in his sight. And look what it says in verse 10. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, verse 10, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not listen carefully, obey my voice. Here, God associates evil in his sight with a failure to hear what he has to say. And we've already talked about that, remember? Every observant Jew would hear, they would start the day with Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he associates evil in his sight with not listening, with not hearing. By the way, what's the most frequently repeated charge given in the New Testament by Jesus? If you were to sum up the most spoken thing that Jesus says throughout the New Testament in a single word, what do you suppose that single word would be? I'm going to tell you. It's listen. It's listen. By the way, the word listen or hear in the New Testament occurs 135 times in the Greek New Testament. Listen. Listen. Jesus, by the way, when Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What do you suppose he's saying? You think he's mocking deaf people? No, he's not mocking deaf people. When he says, he who has an ear to hear, what he's basically saying is, listen to the word of God. Listen to the message of God. Now, this becomes an important point for each and every one of you. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I am going to ask you to search your heart right at this very moment. I'm going to ask you to search your heart and say, what would I rather hear? Would I rather hear the TV? Would I rather hear the radio? Would I rather hear a book? Would I rather hear a movie, entertainment, whatever? What is it about us that is reluctant to hear the word of God? Now, you're not in trouble, by the way. You're here. That, to me, means that it's your desire. You could be at home watching TV. You could be at home doing this. You could be doing that. But you come and you, you say, I want to hear the word of God. Guess what? That's a great sign. And that's a wonderful thing. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so in your heart, when you say, no, I, I really do want to hear the word of God. I want to hear the principles of God. I want to hear the promises of God. I want to understand how I can know him and love him and serve him. But one of the passages points that we're going to begin to explore is a different question. Why didn't the people listen? 
Even in the New Testament, when Jesus, when, when it says over and over again, 135 times, listen, 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 then why don't people listen? In one sense, they didn't believe the prophet. If I could, again, take you back in time and space and transport you to Jerusalem, and there's Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is preaching, and the people are talking, and I say, hi, Mr. Person, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the Bible? What do you suppose an observant Jew would say? Yes. Tell me what you think about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yeah, these are words from God given by God to Moses. They would have said, look, we believe in God. We're Jews. We go to the temple. We do Jewish things. We embrace Jewish rituals. The Jews heard Jeremiah's voice. But they didn't heed his warning. Why? How could they hear the message, but they couldn't respond to the message? What was it about the message that that they weren't motivated to respond? And it's okay for you to ask yourself that question. How is it that I can come to church week after week and month after month and year after year? How is it that I can open my Bible? How is it that I can hear message after message after message? But for whatever reason, it's not sinking in. It's not catching hold. It's not transforming my life. It's not not only informing my thinking and my speaking and my living. How am I to explain that it's not motivating me to turn from my sin and to respond to God? If you ask them if they believed in God, they would say yes. But if you ask them, do you have a living faith? Do you have the kind of faith and confidence in God that compels you to respond differently in any given situation? And that was the problem. They didn't have a living faith. They didn't have the kind of faith that changes the way you live. The Bible says the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus said in John 6:63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they're life. They're not just precepts or principles. It's not meant to just simply persuade you or entertain you. There has got to be something about the message that you lay hold of and you go, this is a transformative message. And what is the transformative message? That your sins can be forgiven, that the Holy Spirit has been placed within you, that you have the necessary tools to be able to respond to God in in confident faith. Now, does God insist that he has the power to do as he pleases? The answer is yes. Does it please God on behalf of the sinner to make him or her a saint when they confidently confess their sin? And trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When Jesus said, I go, I'm going to go, um, but I'm going to send a comforter who would be with you and in you. Jesus makes a promise. He goes, I'm not going to leave you helpless. Guess what? I'm going to give you the necessary mechanism. And I'm going to place my spirit inside of you. So that you can hear and understand. 
God has the power to save and condemn. But guess what the message of the New Testament is? That for the person who places their confidence in Jesus, it's a message of salvation and not of condemnation. And so he holds them in his hand like the potter holds the clay. The Lord has the right and the power to set up laws that decide the direction and destiny of people. Does the Lord have the power to pronounce judgment on a people if they reject him and lead evil lives? The answer is yes. But most people don't really believe that. In the wickedness of their own self-deception, They wake up in the morning and they think, God won't really judge me, that God doesn't really care, that God is busy doing other things. And he doesn't care what I'm thinking and he doesn't care how I'm feeling and he doesn't care what I want and he doesn't care what I need. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. At every moment of every day, from the moment that you open your eyes God is thinking about you. He's loving you. He's preparing you. He's trying to compel you to find out His will. What He's thinking and what He desires for you. Some people don't believe God would do such a thing. They don't believe that God would really judge them for their sin. And Jeremiah says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, he will. He really will. And so in verse 11, it says, now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm fashioning a disaster and I'm devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Jeremiah is instructed to speak to the people, to the inhabitants of the land and Jerusalem. And once again, the Lord says, look. Time is running out. I need you to turn from your sin and I need you to embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I need you to embrace all that God has said in the commandments. And then the Lord reveals the awful judgment. By the way, the word fashioning is a play on words. It really can't be translated. The word shaping or fashioning is yotzer. The verb is identical with the noun. Do you know what the noun is? Potter. We say the person who makes the delivery is the deliverer. Here, the person shaping or fashioning, the literal word in the Hebrew language is potting. Potting. The idea is forming, shaping, changing, molding. But once again, God in his sovereignty issues an opportunity and an invitation. He says, return now. By the way, do you, do you, do you read that return later? If you're wondering that the word now is in the original language... It's now. I know you don't have to be a theologian to figure this one out. 
Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. The simple message, repent or face judgment. Okay, so what is God's plan? It's to judge the people because of their wicked ways. What's the appeal of God? I don't want that to happen. It doesn't have to happen that way. You can turn from your evil. You can make your ways and your doings good. Turn from evil. Turn to the Lord. Live a life that reflects the moral commands of God. Live your life. Make a radical decision that something fundamentally, dramatically is going to change. Here's the problem. Can you imagine saying to a blind person, see, I need you to see, or to a deaf person, I need you to hear, or to an evil person. Now remember, again, in the text, what evil is. Evil doesn't mean you're a serial killer. It doesn't mean that you burn children in the middle of the night. Evil is an unwillingness to obey what God says. It really is that simple. In order for you to come to grips with the meaning of that word, then the fundamental meaning is whenever you hear what God has to say and then you refuse to do what God says, you are acting in an evil fashion. That's what, that's what that means. So what's God's plan? In order to turn from evil, in order to turn to the Lord, in order to live a good way that reflects the moral commands of God, what's going to be necessary? You're going to need a new heart, won't you? You'll need a new way of thinking and you'll need a new way of feeling and you'll need to wake up and be a different person. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that's exactly what God wants to provide for you. A new heart. New affections. New power. And so, in verse 12, look what it says. And they said, well, this is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans. And we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his own evil heart. Do you understand what's happening in verse 12, the people are scoffing. And by the way, the word scoff means we don't believe the message. They refuse to repent. They insist on going forward with their own plans. Here is the idea in a nutshell. This is my plan, God says. And they say, we have a different plan. And th here's the different plan. We're going to ignore your plan and we're going to embrace our plan. What is ignoring God's plan? To turn from their evil and to do what's good. That's God's plan. Their plan, we're going to continue to do what we're doing. The people reject God's appeal. And here's the reason that they give. We're hopeless. We're beyond redemption. We will continue to stubbornly obey our wicked instincts and our selfish desires. Does that sound familiar to any one of you? Have you ever woken up one day, oh, it's hopeless. I can't do what you want me to do. I can't be what you want me to be. 
did it ever occur to you that God, what God wants you to do and what God wants you to be is exactly what we sung earlier. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be your servant. You sang it over and over again. And for some of you, it was annoying. How long are we? How many times are we going to say, I want to be like Jesus? How many times if I repeat it over and over again, is that what's going to make it happen? And the reality is just simply saying it over and over is not going to make it happen. Because simple desire can't make you like Jesus. You need supernatural intervention. You need help from God. You need a miracle. And that's what salvation is. It's a miracle of redemption. It's a miracle of birth. You literally do become a new person in Christ. That's what the Bible says. If any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away and everything has become new. The people of Judah and Jerusalem say, we're hopeless, we're beyond redemption. We're going to continually to obey our wicked instincts and our selfish desires. And in verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the Gentiles who has heard such things. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Do you understand what the Lord is saying? The Lord is basically saying even pagans don't don't act in such an irrational way. The people of Israel have done what the Goim, that's the Gentiles, would never do. Even Gentiles don't turn from their own gods. Here's the irony. The God of Israel is the true God. Is the, the God of Israel is the living God, the self-existent God, the sovereign God, the loving God, the gracious God, the kind God. Note that the Lord calls Israel the virgin of Israel. Do you have any idea what that means? I'm going to help you. It means when I found you and I loved you and I redeemed you, here's what I had in mind. Purity and faithfulness. That's what that means. Here's the meaning, the meaning is, hey, I showed up, gave you a new life, gave you a new heart, gave you a new command, gave you an opportunity to respond in love and faithfulness and purity and faithfulness. God's people are called to be pure and faithful. And so here's my expectation. Purity and faithfulness. And so what does Israel do? They become impure and unfaithful. They choose false gods. They choose to live a wicked life. You know what a virgin is. This is the betrothal of a person whose expectation is to remain pure and faithful. That's the job that she has. But she's done a horrible thing. Can you imagine? Think about this for just a moment. The girl wants to have a husband who will be strong and kind and loving and generous, who will provide your every need. Girls, in their mind, can somewhat picture the perfect man. Of course, he doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean that the picture doesn't exist. 
And so the response is unreasonable. Maybe you've known someone. They're in this relationship. And they sabotage the relationship. They sabotage the relationship by engaging in some sort of wicked behavior. The people's response, here's what the Lord is saying. This is unreasonable. This is irrational. Here the implication, Judah and Jerusalem are more wicked than the most wicked Gentile country. How, 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 what do you mean? More wicked than the Mayans who march people up a stone temple and plunge an obsidian knife into their heart and then take the beating heart and offer it to the sun god? Yeah. These people are in darkness and they're blinded. The children of Israel have a revelation from God. They have a word from the true and the living God. Christians have a real Savior, not a mythical Savior, not a pretend Savior, not some, sort, not some sort of religious idea. A real Jesus who really lived and really died and really rose from the dead and who's really alive and who keeps his promises is your Savior. And so in verse 14, it says, will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Lebanon, by the way, in the, in the Hebrew language means white. A snow capped mountain range beginning about 15 miles southeast of Sidon, running north for about 100 miles. The slopes below the snow line produce the famous cedars of Lebanon. I want you to picture it's like the Rockies, like like the Colorado Rockies, the snow comes on top of our mountains, the, the, the snow melts, and when the snow melts, it brings fresh water down the side of the slopes. The lower hills and the valleys were rich and fertile because of the unfailing supply of water, which comes from the rock of the field, Sirion, or Sedai. This was the Phoenician name for Mount Hermon, whose snow melt provided the, the headwaters for the Jordan. And so part of the point, the expression, will the cold waters be forsaken for strange waters, literally, do the mountain waters run dry, or are the foreign waters plucked up? It, the image and the metaphor is, you have a constant supply of fresh, pure, clean, life-giving, satisfying Water. How do you explain going to a mud hole and sticking a straw in the mud and then trying to suck the mud through a straw and go, this tastes like dirt. Of course it tastes like dirt because it is dirt. That's the metaphor. The metaphor is who in their right mind would choose a dirt shake over a delicious strawberry vanilla with just a hint of mango. Do you understand what the Lord is doing? He's saying, come, let us reason together. 
How smart, how smart is it for a dying man of thirst to reject pure, cool snow melt from the top of the mountain? Why would a person dying of thirst reject pure, clean water? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This is not sensible. Who in their right mind would pick guilt over forgiveness? Who in their right mind will pick hell over heaven? Who in their right mind will say, I want emptiness. I want darkness. I want guilt. I want fear. And look what it says in verse 15. Because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. When it says, because my people, remember, he still continues to identify with them. These aren't strangers. This isn't someone who you pick up off the side of the road. They have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols. Literally, in the Hebrew language, the word worthless idols is an idiomatic expression. It means the empty, vanity, the nothing, in vain. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated a fraud, a nothing, a non-entity. This is the Lord's way of saying, they're not real. They don't even exist. It's not real. It doesn't really exist. The people rejected the ancient paths of righteousness, the path of God's revelation, the path of God's word, the the path of God's protection and provision and promise and commandments, rejecting the narrow way. They chose the roughest road possible. You probably have been in circumstances where you heard someone say. We can do this the easy way. Or we can do this the hard way. And that's the point that the Bible is actually making. It's, why would you choose a way that is so difficult, that is so damaging, that is so hurtful? The path of idolatry and the path of false religion, it has a one-way ticket to a one-way destination. And that's self-destruction. The road was clearly marked. You know, when I was a kid and I first accepted the Lord, there was a popular song. It was two roads from which to choose the road to glory or the fool's highway. Two roads from which to choose the rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. The song goes, choose before the Savior comes. The road to glory or the rocky one. Please decide before the Lord descends. Sweet road to glory Or the bitter end. And so in verse 16 it says. To make their land desolate. And a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished. And shake his head. Here's what that means. Future generations are going to look. 
over the landscape of Judah and Jerusalem. They're going to see the pain and the sorrow and the destruction. And they're going to shake their head and they're going to say, what happened here? How could something like this happen? Future generations will shake their head and ask the question, how could they have let this happen? The text implies bewilderment and loathing. And both are correct. The implication is, how is it even possible? Why? Who in their right mind, who in their right mind is going to reject God's provision? And once again, the consequences of disobedience are going to be catastrophic for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. The people are going to be killed. They're going to be taken captive. They're going to be transported away. And so the reoccurring theme is exactly that. That's what rebellion and disobedience does. It begins with isolation, estrangement, alienation. And then we become captive to our wickedness and our sinful behavior. What could be worse? Uh Uh-oh. Verse 17. You mean it goes downhill from... I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. The Lord will scatter the people who have forgotten him and rejected him and embraced idolatry like the east wind. The east wind is this fierce Scirocco that comes up from the desert. And I don't know if you've ever been in a desert community. I grew up in a desert community. And in the Mojave Desert or in the desert that's somewhere between Phoenix and Indio in Southern California, there are sand dunes. And when the wind comes, it literally picks up the dust and it's like a blast from... It it, it literally will take away the surface of the paint off of of cars. And so the east wind, this fierce Scirocco blows because of the people's repeated, persistent, unrepentant rejection of God in his perfect righteousness. He will turn his back on them. It can be Erim or it can be Arem. If it's Erim, it means... They won't even see the back of God. If it's Erim, it means I will look on their back. And I think that that might be the meaning. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In any broken relationship, in any severed relationship, in any destroyed relationship, when there's a parting of the ways, two people can turn their backs on one another and go in different directions. I think that the implication in this text is that the people of Judah and Jerusalem have turned their back on God and they're walking away. They're walking away. They're walking away. And as they're walking away, this is a metaphor. The metaphor is I see your back. I see your back. That's all I see. That's that's the only thing that I see. I'll look upon their back. I think it's an idiomatic expression of I see you leaving. I see you leaving. Now, what's interesting is, as he sees them leaving, there's the cry. Where are you, God? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you with me? Why aren't you protecting me? Why aren't you providing for me? Where are you, God? 
God's response, I'm exactly where you told me to go. You told me to go away. And I said, I'm going to give you another chance. And you told me to go away. And I said, I'll give you another chance. And you said, told me to go away. And, and every time I showed up, you told me to go away, go away, go away. And then you said, stay away, stay away. And the people would experience the utter bitter alienation from God. The people would be cut off from God's help. It isn't simply because God is punishing them. It's simply because they're now embracing the full consequences of their decision. You need to understand what Jeremiah is saying. God has pleaded with Judah. He pleads with the wicked humanity. No one has pleaded more than God has with Judah and Jerusalem. He's, we've heard it. Every one of you who have come to this Bible study week after week, he said, I, I'm so willing for you to turn from your sin. I'm so willing to take you back. I'm so willing to embrace you. I'm so willing to save you from the coming judgment. God loves you. He wants you to escape the judgment. This is the reason why the New Testament is filled with the pleadings of Paul and the pleadings of Matthew and the pleadings of Mark and, and the pleadings of Luke and Peter and James and John. And over and over again, they're begging you, begging you to turn from your sin. But whose voice will you listen to? Why can't you hear? What will be the voice that will finally convince you? Is it Jesus? Is it the voice of Jesus crying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophet and stone them which are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You wouldn't let me. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to provide for you. I wanted to make a provision for you. You know, for the person who stupidly, wickedly, falsely says, well, I didn't have a choice in the matter. Is that what the Bible really teaches? Does the Bible somehow say exonerate you for, from the wickedness and the evil behavior? How do you explain Paul pleading in the book of Romans, but to Israel he says, all day long I've stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, now we then are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. It's Paul's way of saying, you may not see Jesus and you may not hear his voice, but I want you to listen carefully. I want you to hear his voice in my voice. Be reconciled to God. That's what he's saying. It's, he's saying it. He's saying, I want you to listen to me as if you were listening to Jesus himself. Be reconciled to God. And so in 18, the people's reaction. Then they said. Then they fell to their knees and they began to repent and they cried out to God and they said, you're right, Jeremiah, we're wrong. Let's let's stop doing this. Is that what it says? 
Oh, no, it doesn't say that. I'm always hoping that at this point in the passage it says, and revival broke out. And people wept. And they fell to their knees. And they lifted their voices to heaven. And they said, you know what? I'm, I'm listening, Lord. And I want to listen hard. I want to listen hard to what you have to say to me. But that's not what it says. It says, then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue. And let us not give heed to any of his words. You know what they don't do? Preacher, that was a great sermon. Let me shake your hand. Here's how they respond. We hate you, Jeremiah. We hate your message. We can't stand your preaching. We hate your goofy stories and your parables. Why? We hate your message because it's not like the other religious leaders' messages. Come and let us devise plans. For the law shall not perish from the priests, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word of the prophet. Do you understand what that means? We have our religion. We have the rituals. We have the rules. We have the regulations. Here's what we have. We have religious leaders who preach peace and prosperity and religious tolerance and self-esteem. You know what? When we go to their church, we hear messages that make us feel good about ourselves. The other priests and prophets, they preach messages that stress God's provision and God's protection and God's promise and God's safety and God's security. The preaching of the religious leaders stressed self-esteem, self-image. It made them confident that God really wasn't going to judge them. And after all, God gave the Jews the law and the temple and the promise of the Messiah. Think of all the blood. Think of all the sweat. Think of all of the tears. Think of all that you've read in the Bible as God releases them out of Egypt and parts the Red Sea and brings them through the wilderness for 40 years. And then Joshua occupies the land and they have to kick out the residents. And then the time of the judges all the way through to the time of Saul and David and Solomon and the division of the kingdom and the establishing of the temple. Are you going to tell me that God's just going to flush all that down the toilet? The prophets and the priests say, we're we're good. And they professed God's name. They're Jews. They're religious Jews. How could God judge them if they continued to externally carry out the religious rituals? How could Jeremiah's preaching on judgment be correct if everyone else is preaching exactly the opposite? And how can I be in trouble if I'm going to church and I'm reading my Bible and I'm trying to avoid Stupid things and wicked things, but yet over and over and over and over again, you live a life that is powerless and detached from true biblical Christianity. 
my only explanation is, is you either have a real faith or an unreal faith. You have a said faith or a dead faith. But in order to have a living faith, you have to have a living Savior. And the living Savior has to be inside of you. And rage began to swell up in their hearts and the people plotted to stop Jeremiah. In their minds, they're thinking, we've got to make him shut up. We've got to make him shut up. The scheme included verbal attacks, slander him, discredit his message. Somehow, some way, we've got to make him go away. And in verse 19, it says, give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Jeremiah says, he's praying. We've gone from... The plot now to the prayer. Jeremiah prays, shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Did the people dig a literal pit for Jeremiah? I'm going to suggest to you, yes, it's not just a metaphorical pit. I'm going to suggest to you that they literally began to dig a hole and they said, you know what? We're digging a hole, and we're going to put Jeremiah in that hole. We're going to put him in a place where no one has to listen to him, and no one has to deal with him. In verse 21, it says, Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine, and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows, and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Verse 23, yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight, but let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Some commentators are saying, wow. Kind of harsh. Kind of bitter. Jeremiah, what are you thinking? What kind of a Christian are you, Jeremiah? Where's the other cheek, Jeremiah? Some people suggest that he's gripped by anger or gripped by fear. What if I told you that over and over again, Jeremiah has demonstrated that he knows the Lord and he loves the Lord. And it's way more likely that under the crushing pressure of persecution, Jeremiah is simply fleeing to the only place that he has, the Lord. They're trying to kill him, and here's what Jeremiah is saying. You deal with them, Lord. And by the way, there's few things in the Middle East that are more reprehensible you know what brings almost immediate judgment and a curse? If you do something kind for someone and they do something evil. Let me use an illustration. Imagine you invite someone into your home and you feed them food and you give them water and shelter and you provide for them. You give them a place to stay and food to eat and you provide for them. And then they go into your room and they steal all of your jewelry and then they walk out the door. How do you feel right now? betrayed that you do something so kind and they do something so evil 
I'm going to suggest to you that Jeremiah's motive isn't personal vindication, but rather the vindication of God's name. And where Jeremiah, look carefully, he's making three requests. Number one, Jeremiah asked God to listen to the hostile threats of the accusers in verses 19-20. He's saying, Lord, you listen to what they're saying. And by the way, that's always good advice for you and me. When we pray, we get on our knees and we say, Lord, you listen to what they're saying. They were repaying good with evil. Jeremiah loved the people. Jeremiah preached God's word to the people. Jeremiah in obedience was delivering a message. If heeded and obeyed would result in redemption and reconciliation and salvation. In other words, the moment that they said, we're hearing what you're saying and we believe what you're saying. Their lives could be radically, fundamentally changed. The teaching and preaching of God's word was for their benefit. And by the way, that's the way it should always be. We preach Christ, Paul wrote, and him crucified. The teaching and preaching of God's word was for their benefit. And by the way, the preaching and teaching of God's word here is for your benefit. It's for your edification. It's for your growth. But they were repaying good with evil. In fact, they dug a pit. They tried to ensnare Jeremiah in the hopes of killing him. And we're going to see more about that. And and number two, Jeremiah asked God to remember his faithfulness down through the years in preaching the truth. Jeremiah had preached the truth. He says, okay, I'm going to preach the truth about sin. I'm going to preach the truth about righteousness. I'm going to preach the truth about the coming judgment. Maybe that'll stir the people. Maybe that will motivate them. Maybe they'll repent. No. Jeremiah then asked God to vindicate himself by fulfilling his word and executing judgment that he pronounced. Keep in mind that the people were soaked in sin and steeped in wickedness, saturated in satanic rebellion. They would never repent. I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking the exact same thing. Well, then why waste the prophet's time? Why waste God's time? Have you ever said, God, what in the world do you have me speaking to that person? That person's never going to be saved. They're never going to hear. They're never going to respond to the gospel. It's never going to happen. Jesus, Jesus, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Jesus, leave me alone. Jesus, leave me alone. Jesus, leave me alone. Why? Why even have this conversation? Because no one on the day of judgment could point to either Jeremiah or God and say, why didn't you warn us? Hey, Jeremiah, how about a little heads up? Judgment and everything. How about your neighbor? How about your family? Hey, why didn't you give me a little heads up? Why didn't you give me a little heads up that there was a hell waiting for me? If I refuse and reject Jesus, why didn't you give me a heads up? Warren Wiersbe writes, and I, I want to quote it at length. He says, quote, there is a righteous anger against sin that is acceptable to God. 
Be angry and don't sin. Ephesians 4.26, quoted from Psalm 4.4. You who love the Lord hate evil. Psalm 97.10, Romans 12.9. Jesus was angry at the hardening of the hearts of his critics. Mark 3.5. Paul was angry because of professed believers who were leading others astray. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn, he writes in 2 Corinthians 11.29. Unrighteous anger takes matters into its own hands. And seeks to destroy the offender. While righteous anger turns the matter over to God. And seeks to help the offended. By the way, what a great line. Do you want to know if your anger is righteous or unrighteous? Your anger is righteous if you turn it over to God. And you say, God, you do what's best for that person. He writes, If Jeremiah seems too angry to us, Perhaps some of us today aren't angry enough at evil in the world. Thanks to the media, we're exposed to so much violence and sin that we tend to accept it as the normal part of life and we don't want to do anything about it. Crusading has given away to compromising and it isn't politically correct to be dogmatic or critical of ideas that are definitely unbiblical, unquote. Do we live in a time when we're absolutely terrified to say this is right and this is wrong. This is good. This is evil. We're made by God for God. Our value isn't found in our own perceptions, but God's revelation. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. First Peter 1, 25, that the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Psalm 119:89. forever, O Lord, your word is settled. In heaven. What does the Bible say? God's word will come true. God's promises will come true. God's judgment will come true. And there's the rub. For the person who convinces himself or herself that the word is not settled. That the Bible is not true. That the Bible is confused and contradictory, maybe even false. You know why so many people are willing to abandon the Bible? Because if the promises aren't true, then neither is the judgment. And they will tell themselves the biggest lie that has ever been spoken. God doesn't care. God won't judge you. It doesn't matter what you do. Is that what the Bible says? Heavenly Father, we know that the Bible doesn't say that. Lord, we know that the Bible says that our lives matter. Our love matters. Our friendships and fellowship matter. 
Our marriages matter. Our families matter. The word of God matters. The promises of God matter. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray. And we thank you, Lord, that there is hope for us. There's redemption for us. There's reconciliation for us. Lord, we know the Bible is true and the word of God will be vindicated. And what God says will happen and God's hand of judgment will fall. And every human being will stand before the judgment seat of God. And for the believer, they'll stand before the bema seat of Jesus. And God will fulfill his word. Lord, you will do exactly what you've promised to do. You'll reward good and you'll punish evil. And so, Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves in the only safe place possible. Right in the middle of the cross where Jesus is and was and wrote and that dying on that cross and rising from the dead and living forever, that he took his, the punishment upon himself so that we would not have to be punished. And so, Lord, we thank you for the love of Jesus and the redemption that we have in Jesus and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Lord, when everyone else will abandon it, Lord, we'll embrace it because it's the place of safety and hope and forgiveness and love. In Jesus' name, amen.